keep your feet for just a moment and we'll sing a, another short song together, number 174. We've already sung of how the whole of this earth praises God, and now we join in and take our own part in that. I will worship with all of my heart. I will praise you with all my strength. I don't know how it sounded down there, but up here it sounded like the ladies had us there, fellas. It wasn't close up here. We'll, we'll try next time. Let's pray. Father God, we do want to give you all of our worship and all of our praise. We know that to worship you is more than to to sing and to use music. To worship you is to lay our, our whole lives, every activity before you and open to you. Lord, we would worship you now in these next few minutes together as we give our ear and pay attention to your word, as we open our hearts ready for your prompting and you're moving. Lord, come 
and receive our worship just now, we pray. Amen. Have you ever found yourself wishing that you could have been with Jesus during his time here on earth? You know, it must have been great to hear him preach. I can't imagine, as, a, as somebody who stumbles through this week by week, what it would have been like to hear Jesus preach. It must have been incredible to, to see him heal, heal all sorts of people, physically, emotionally, demon-possessed. Just to witness all those miracles, to see things the like of which none of us ever get to see. I can't help but think sometimes it would have been brilliant to be one of those disciples to see and hear and experience all of that. And I can't, can't help but thinking, well, if I did have that experience of Jesus, I would have enough faith to see me through whatever lies ahead, enough faith to do me a lifetime. Well, it's interesting that Jesus challenges this notion this notion that faith in him depends on his physical incarnate presence. And he does that in the passage that we have read here this evening. In John chapter 16 and verse 7, talking to his disciples gathered in the upper room around him, he says this, on a night just before he'll go to the cross, die, and eventually leave his disciples, he says, I tell you the truth, it's good for you that I'm going away. Jesus is saying this to these men who have been with him full time now for three years. Three years with God, the Son, incarnate. And Jesus says there's something better on the way. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And he's talking here, of course, about the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' assessment, things aren't about to get worse for the disciples. They're about to get better. We shouldn't be hankering after this experience of the first disciples, these men who were privileged to know firsthand the ministry of the incarnate Jesus on earth. We've got the greater glory of God's Spirit present in us and working through us. Jesus indwells us rather than walks beside us. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that takes some getting my head around. You know, it's easy to say that. I still think, given the choice of, of having Jesus here, walking out the door with him and ministering with him, but, but Jesus assures us that we have something better. By the way, if we're not convinced about what Jesus here said here to his disciples, there's an easy test we can run on this. All we have to do is compare the disciples as they are here and now in the upper room with what they become in a few months' time. Think of who the disciples are now. Tonight, they're unreliable and they're fearful. Within a couple of hours, despite all their promises of commitment to Jesus, they are going to abandon him. And they're going to leave him to a cruel death. 
despite any, any confidence that they, they appear to have, any bravery that they think they might have, the next few hours are going to show them all to be terrified. They're going to run from Jesus and they're going to cower away together out of sight of the Roman authorities. That's who the disciples are now, unreliable and fearful. And yet in a few weeks' time, when the promised Holy Spirit has been poured out on them, it's going to be an entirely different story. They will face Jewish persecution, they'll face the Roman authorities, and they'll do that with great courage and even with joy. They're going to go and they're going to take the gospel of Jesus into all the world, and they're going to do that despite the fact that their life often is in danger. Jesus wasn't exaggerating here. It really is good for these disciples that he goes away. The key, the key to this transformation, obviously, it's very clear in the passage, is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, in our passage, Jesus looks at the work of the Spirit and he splits it into two key areas, two aspects of the Spirit's job description. Firstly, Verse 8, he convicts the world of guilt. And secondly, in verse 13, he guides believers into all truth. We're going to take our time this evening to look quickly at these two key works of the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Spirit convicts the world of guilt. By the way, whenever we say that the Spirit is out to convict the world of guilt, We don't mean that he's out to secure a conviction before a judge because the guilty verdict already stands. Paul says in no uncertain terms, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is beyond debate. That's not the work of the Spirit to establish that guilty verdict. The work of the Spirit is to approach the defendant and to move each one of us to the point where we understand that guilty verdict and the implications of it. The Spirit moves us to enter a guilty plea, to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And then God, who is gracious, when we come to Him admitting our guilt, admitting our sinfulness, He he freely forgives us. In verse 8, Jesus refers to three different spheres in which the Spirit convicts the world of guilt in regard to sin, in regard to righteousness, and in regard to judgment. He elaborates then on those three spheres in each of the next three verses. Firstly, in verse 9, the Spirit convicts the world in regard to sin. Friends, it's the Spirit's job to make us aware of our own sinfulness. And why does he need to do that? Because men do not believe in me, says Jesus. People don't believe in Jesus. They don't accept his teaching, and they don't accept his assessment of their own sinfulness. That's why people don't turn to Jesus for salvation. They don't understand that they need to be saved. And it's the Spirit's job to come then and to convict them of their sin. If He didn't do that, there is no way 
that a person would ever come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? If you're in Jesus Christ, it's only because at some point in your life, the Holy Spirit came to you and convicted you of your sinfulness, of your need of Jesus. Without that convicting work of the Spirit, there's no way any one of us would ever break free of our own blindness and walk into the light of God. But there's a second area in which the Spirit convicts the world of guilt, and it's in regard, verse 10, in regard to righteousness. I find this a little bit harder to understand, and different commentators, different scholars come at this in different ways. I think that Jesus is using some measure of irony here. And he's making the point that every bit as much as the world needs to be convicted of its sinfulness, it needs to be convicted of its imagined righteousness. Throughout John's gospel, we find that Jesus constantly does this. He constantly undermines the imagined righteousness of people he meets. Time and time again, Paul does the same. He undermines any notion that human righteousness has any value for salvation. Let's think about this and make it practical for a moment. The vast majority of people that I meet in my pastoral visitation, they don't regard themselves as sinners. They're thinking something along these lines. If the Lamb of God really came into the world to save sinners, then fair play to Him, because I'm not a sinner, so it doesn't really impinge on me. Today, more than ever before, the Spirit needs to convict people of guilt in regard to their righteousness as well as their sinfulness. God's Spirit needs to convict us of our own respectability. Those, own, those things that we cling to, that we think make us acceptable before God, the Spirit needs to come and expose the futility of those to us. Along with Nicodemus, the respectable religious leader, we need to be born again. As I've already said, this was a key aspect of Jesus' ministry. Wherever he went, he seemed to expose self-righteousness. Think of who hated Jesus. Sinful people generally didn't hate Jesus or those who were, who were truly regarded as sinners. The people who hated Jesus were the respectable, the religious, the self-righteous, the religious leaders. Friends, the Spirit exposes our sinfulness but we also need the Spirit to convict us of our own righteousness. Thirdly, in verse 11, the Spirit convicts the world of guilt in regard to judgment. Now, I think it's probably best to understand this verse in a very broad sense. Whenever we don't have our eyes opened by the Spirit, our judgment on everything that's important in life is messed up. It's unclear. Our judgment regarding Jesus is wrong, but our, our judgment of everything that's important regarding life is wrong. And it's vital that the Spirit comes and that He convicts us of all of these false judgments that we make. 
If the Spirit doesn't do that for us, it's impossible for us to recognize Jesus for what He is. Jesus is truth. If you're blind to truth, you will not see Jesus. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its judgment because the prince of the world now stands condemned. What does he mean by that? Jesus is speaking here of a particular moment, a moment not too far in the future, when he will be crucified and will die on the cross. The cross is the key point where people make a misjudgment. People look at the cross and they see Jesus and it looks as though he's defeated. The judgment that they make is that this is the defeat of Jesus Christ and the victory of his enemies. What the Holy Spirit does is he comes and he opens our eyes to the reality of the cross, that the cross really is the victory of Jesus Christ and that the prince of this world, that Satan, Jesus' great enemy, now stands condemned. Friends, we can't reach that conclusion on our own. We can't look at the cross and see it as the victory of Jesus Christ. Not until the Spirit comes and convicts us of judgment and shows us that Satan is defeated. I want to slow down for a second here and see how how vitally important and crucial all of this is, the implications of this first work of the Holy Spirit. What we have learned here this evening should give us a, a wonderful and a quiet confidence for our task of bringing the gospel to the world. Do you ever hear somebody talk about evangelism and sharing your faith? Maybe somebody like me and think, I can't do this. You think of people that you know in your workplace or in the streets of Ballyhackamore, and you you wonder, how are these people ever going to see Jesus for who He really is? I can talk till I'm blue in the face. I can give them gospel literature. But how are they going to see Jesus? What can I possibly do to convince them? If you ever feel like that, don't worry. Convincing people of Jesus Christ isn't your job or mine. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. It's His job to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and to show them the reality of Jesus. Your job and mine is to share the gospel, to share it as well as we can, as often as we can, but with a full trust and confidence that God's Spirit works in us and through us, and He will draw people to Jesus. In his commentary on this passage, Don Carson said, I would quit all forms of Christian ministry immediately if I were not convinced that the, whole, the Lord Jesus is building His church that the Father has given over a people to His Son, and that the blessed Holy Spirit is working in the world to convict it of its sin, its righteousness, 
and its judgment. Well, Don Carson, as far as I know, hasn't yet given up the ministry that God has called him to. Let's none of us give up either. Let's wait for the Spirit to come and to convict people in, of their need of Jesus. We're going to be much quicker on the second half of all of this. The first half there, the focus fell on the Spirit's work in relation to people who don't know Jesus. They need to be convicted of their sin. The second work of the Spirit, which Jesus talks about mostly in verses 12 to 15, is directed primarily at Christians. Look at verse 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He'll guide you into all truth. The Spirit is going to come to the disciples in the absence of Jesus, and He's going to guide them into the truth about Jesus. Jesus has three different aspects of the Spirit's work in mind. The first aspect, the Spirit's work is to complete the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Now, as I thought about this, it seems to me the Spirit does that in a whole lot of ways. But I'm going to focus in on one. Can you imagine being a Christian without the New Testament? I want you to think about that for a second. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a Christian without the guidance and help that you have received in the New Testament? Well, that's where these believers are, these disciples of Jesus. Paul hasn't written his letters yet. None of the Gospels have been written. None of that help and that guidance that's available to us in the New Testament is available to these disciples at this point in time. But friends, what Jesus is promising here, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, is the inspiring of those who would give us the written revelation of God's Word. There would come a point in time where a Jew converted to Jesus Christ by the name of Paul would set pen to paper and where his letters would be recognized by the community of Jesus as having been inspired by the Holy Spirit and would be kept for all subsequent communities for their help. There would come a time when a doctor by the name of Luke would write a gospel telling us all about the life of Jesus and would write a book called The Acts of the Apostles, telling us of the acts of the Holy Spirit in the church. Others would contribute. James, a half-brother of Jesus, he's not even a Christian yet. He doesn't even believe in Jesus on this night when Jesus makes this promise. But he's used by the Holy Spirit to fulfill this promise. The Holy Spirit completes the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Friends, there's a second way. Secondly, Jesus tells us that the Spirit depends on the Father for everything that He says. Now, we shouldn't be surprised about that. Jesus Himself, when He walked on the earth, made this claim time and time again. He said, everything that I say has been given to me by the Father. 
Flick back to John chapter 14, verse 10. He says, Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? John 14, verse 10. The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing this work. Whenever Jesus Christ spoke, he spoke the words of God, God the Father. And whenever the Spirit speaks, he also continues in the work of Jesus Christ and speaks the words of the Father. Now, it's important, it seems to me, that we grasp that this evening. Some of us come from traditions where we've been very conservative about the work of the Holy Spirit and His role. The Spirit confuses us, and He worries us. When we look at some churches around us and the way in which they experience the Holy Spirit, it makes us nervous. We'd rather not have anything too much to do with that. Thank you very much. But look here at what Jesus says in verse 13. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, he will not speak in his own. He'll speak only what he hears, and he'll tell you what is yet to come. Friends, there's nothing here to be nervous of or to be afraid of. The teaching of the Holy Spirit is like the teaching of Jesus. It is the teaching of God. Don't let's be a congregation Or don't let's be individual believers who are somehow afraid of what God might speak to us by His Spirit. In particular, let's keep paying attention to what we know God is saying to us by His Spirit through His Word week by week. The third thing, as we draw almost to a close, the third thing that Jesus teaches here about the Spirit's role with the disciples is that the Spirit will bring glory to Jesus. Look at verse 14. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. I love the way Peterson translates this in the message. He says says of the Spirit, He will honor me. He will take from me and deliver it to you. Everything that the Father has is also mine. That's why I've said, He takes from me and He delivers to you. You see what we have here? We have the Spirit cast in the role of a a postman. He takes all the blessing that God has for us particularly the blessing of recognizing and understanding Jesus fully. And the Spirit delivers that to each one of us. Friends, why on earth would we be nervous of the Spirit anymore? We should be like a a lover on Valentine's Day. We should be sitting, waiting, waiting for that delivery waiting for the post, waiting for what God will send us in terms of our our full understanding of Jesus. Just one last thing as we close. 
on this whole ministry of the Spirit that helps us to understand Jesus. We mustn't misunderstand this. The Holy Spirit is not interested, I'm convinced of this, not interested in giving us more information about Jesus. He doesn't want to make us better theologians understanding the the intellectual aspects of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The Spirit is never interested in imparting information. His interest is always in transformation. The kind of knowing that we're invited to is not a knowledge of Jesus intellectually, but a knowledge of Jesus, the person. Friends, that is the knowledge that the Spirit longs to impart on each one of us. I grew very conscious of that distinction while I was studying theology at Regent College. I can remember arriving there with with great ideas of all the great theology that I would learn. And just at that point in time, when I was probably in greatest danger of intellectualizing my faith, of looking for the great idea rather than the great relationship. Some wise professors, in their own way and in their own words, pointed out this distinction. Not information, but transformation. And friends, as someone who stands before you week by week and preaches God's word to you, rest assured that this is my goal I have absolutely no desire to make you smarter in the ways of the Bible. If you learn more of the Bible, that's, that's great. If you understand more of, of Jesus, that's brilliant. But that's not the kind of knowing that we can stop at. Friends, we long for an understanding of Jesus that changes our lives, not information but transformation. We're finished for this evening. In John 16, Jesus says something that's incredible. I think it'll still be incredible to me until I go to my grave. He says, I tell you the truth, it's good for you that I'm going away. Jesus is able to say that because he understands the fullness of the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is going to come and he's going to convict the world in regard to sin, its own righteousness, and its misguided judgment. The Spirit is going to come and give us a fuller and more complete revelation of Jesus. Friends, let's pray this evening that that both aspects of the Spirit's ministry would be present in our lives and in this congregation just now. Let's pray. Father God, like those disciples in that upper room, we underestimate the work that you have done and will do in this world by your Spirit. Open our eyes, Father God, 
Help us to open our lives to your Spirit. Lord, we would long that your Spirit would be powerfully at work in our congregation, convicting people, all sorts of people, of their need of Jesus. We know that we can't do that. Not in our preaching, not in our conversations. Only the Spirit can open their eyes. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would be powerfully at work in that regard. But Lord, we pray also that your Spirit would be at work among us here who already love you. Lord, would you draw us into a more complete understanding of Jesus and of the life that you call us into as we follow him? Lord, give us a hunger that will never be satisfied. Help us to to be dissatisfied with what we know of you already, hungry always for more. And Lord, as you open our eyes, may you change our lives. Show us, Jesus, that we may be more like him. Father God, we thank you for your spirit, and we pray that we would know him ever more in this place. Amen.